You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. If you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 25. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. As we've been going through 1 Timothy, we saw how Timothy was left there in Ephesus to stop certain ones from teaching any different doctrine and devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And we saw, too, why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. And it was so that he would know how one ought to behave or how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. We discussed how that would be how one must conduct themselves uh, in reference to certain principles or uh, in accordance with customs. And so we discussed when we were in that passage how the church's doctrine and the church's practice go hand in hand. What you believe will reflect in what you do. It will reflect in your practice. And I think we clearly see here in 1 Timothy that if the doctrine of the church, if the teaching of the church is off, then the practice of the church then will also be off. But both the practice and the teaching of the church should be in accordance with God's word. And so be, as we've titled this series, God's desire for his church. And so, as we've been going through this, we've, we've seen how God desires, uh, what he desires for his church, what he desires in the corporate gathering of the church for worship, uh, what we see in, in the leadership and the, who should be, uh, who are the qualified leadership that he desires for his church. And, you know, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at uh, his desire for his church as far as respect is concerned for others. And the last two Sundays, we saw God's desire for the care of widows within the church. And now today we see God's desire for the care of the elders of the church. And in telling us the elders are to be cared for, and how we we see the elders to be cared for, and who those elders are, namely those who lead the church, these are the ones that Paul is instructing care for. And thinking about this, uh, you know, we've been discussing, um, going back to the summer, a couple times in Sunday school and and, in different occasions as well, the idea of a biblical church government and what that looks like. And I think this passage will help us shed light on that topic. And it's important that we, we search the scriptures and seek to be in line with what the Bible clearly teaches. Again, what is God's desire for the church? That should always be what our desire is, that we are conforming more and more to what God has made clear his desire for us is. And so we go to the scriptures and we want to honor God that way as we have a high view of God. And thinking along these lines, John MacArthur in his book, The Master's Plan for the Church, says this, one final component of the skeletal structure of a church is spiritual authority. A church must understand that Christ is the head of the church and that he has mediated his role in the church through godly elders. For the church to be effective as the body of Christ, it has to have the right framework. It has to have a high view of God. The pursuit of a church should be to know God. In seeking to know God, the authority of Scripture must be recognized. For it is through the Bible that we can know God. 
A church should have a high view of Scripture and a commitment to teaching sound doctrine. The Bible or the people of a people of a church should also seek personal holiness and submit their souls to the care of those the Lord has placed over them as spiritual authority. And so we're going to be talking about those that are in that spiritual authority and who Scripture says they are. And, and then, too, what's the response of the church to them to care for them? And even, as we'll see in this text, to protect them as well. And so let us look at this passage here for this morning. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, says, who shall not muzzle, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So as we begin to dig into this text, let us remember that Paul's saying about elders here, He's referring to the same office of the church that he referred to when he talked about overseers back in chapter 3. And it's the same office of the church when he talks about those who are pastors, or or the word pastor means shepherd, and when he uses that title back in Ephesians chapter 4. So again, pastors, elders, overseers, uh, they're all titles for the same office of the church. And Paul begins discussing the church's responsibility to care for their elders, by saying what we read there in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now, I think that's a bit soft of a translation. Uh, And I say that because when we look at the verb there in this verse, in the Greek, it's in the imperative form. And so therefore, what Paul is saying here is a command. And so I think we, we see that laid out as the NASB, the New American Standard Bible translates it, saying the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Now, before we discuss what it means to be considered worthy of double honor, uh, let's first discuss who is to be considered worthy of double honor. And Paul says here that those elders who rule well and so as we look at this and say, let's, let's first make clear that all elders rule. All elders lead. The, the elders, plural, lead the church. They are responsible before Christ for the direction and the care of the church and for the spiritual protection and nourishment of the church. The word translated here as rule 
Uh, It literally means to stand in front of or to lead from the front. So it means to lead or, or sometimes translated as to manage. This word carries the idea of authority and it invokes a sacrificial servant leadership. We saw this same word in chapter 3 when going over the qualifications for elders and deacons. We read there in chapter 3, verse 4 of 1 Timothy, Paul said, He must manage, and there's that word translated here as manage. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And we said then that the same word for the elders' leadership in the church is used here in chapter 3, verse 4, to speak of the leadership in the home. And that is because it is the same sacrificial leadership in view. As the husband or father is responsible for the well-being and the direction of his home, so to the elders are responsible for the well-being and the direction of the church. And so as they are responsible for caring for the church and making decisions for the church, And to that end, then, they will be held accountable before Christ for their leadership. Matter of fact, this care for the church, just like the man's care for his wife and kids, is one reason the church is called to submit to their leaders. We read this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And those with such responsibility will give an account. And so to shirk that responsibility is really not an option. And for the congregation to take up that responsibility is for them then to take up a a weight of accountability that they were not intended to bear. And so this is the job of every elder as they work together to lead the church. Now, there are some who, when it comes to chapter 5, verse 17, they don't like this translation rule for this word. And there's a variety of reasons why. Uh, Some, I would argue, do so to hold on to their tradition, and in their tradition, drain uh, the office of elder from the authority and the leadership that it was intended to be. I think we see support of what it's supposed to be is when we were going through 1 Thessalonians. And there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul referred to those who are over you in the Lord. And again, that's the same word that we see here as rule, that same word that we saw back in chapter 3 as manage and referring to the leadership in the home. It's the same word. Now, there are others, though, that are not comfortable with this word rule here because they're afraid that it might give the connotation of a dictatorship. Uh, And I can appreciate that concern because the leadership within the church is certainly not a dictatorship. But instead, it is servant leadership. The elder must lead and make decisions according to, above all else, what is in line with Scripture. And when they are making decisions and leading the church in line with Scripture, then they are also making decisions and leading the church with the church's best interest in mind. So the elders, they they have no authority outside of Scripture. And they're not to overstep their boundaries. They lead hearing and knowing 
the needs and the concerns of the church, of the congregation. And in that way, the congregation is involved. And as the elders lead, they lead from out front, like this word rule means. They lead like shepherds lead their flock. As opposed to what Robert Stewart says in his book, Church Revitalization from the Inside Out, where he gives a negative illustration of those who lead not like shepherds, but instead like cattle herders. They lead from behind, forcefully driving the flock where they want them to go according to their own agenda, instead of leading from the front according to the Bible's agenda, leading like shepherds lead their sheep. And so leading from the front, it looks like something like when it it comes to necessary changes, either a necessary change in the church's practice or uh, maybe a a doctrine of the church has been found to be more laying in tradition and so is really not biblical. In bringing about such change, it would be the elder's job to teach on these things, teach thoroughly on them, and do their part before they implement these changes, to see that there is unity in the church as they bring understanding to these changes. Also, too, then, as they teach on these things, that affords there to be accountability in the church for the elders. And and we'll talk more about that accountability in a moment. And really, even for us, uh, that's why... Uh, again, in Sunday school, as we've said, going back to the summer, we've been, uh, every now and then, we've been brought up and started talking about what is a, a biblical church government. What does that look like? And thinking about what a biblical church government is, that's, that's in large part why we've been going through 1 Timothy. Uh, so we can point out the, the structure that's here and what God, how God has designed his church. And that's part of the reason why in Sunday school we're going through Acts. It's not completely why, but that's part of the reason. And to all of these things, as we've also been discussing, the idea of having a plurality of elders here at North Valley. So we've been going to the scriptures. What do the scriptures say on these things? And, and so looking to submit ourselves to the scriptures. And so again, all elders rule, all elders lead. And this is a big reason why the qualifications in chapter 3 are so important so that we would have godly men to lead us, to shepherd us. So again, all elders rule. And so then, as we think about what Paul is saying here, then all elders are to be considered worthy of honor. There's a respect that is due to the office of elder. But what Paul is specifically getting at here is that the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. And so these elders who rule well, these elders who, whose faithfulness in their leadership stands out, they're to be considered worthy of double honor. But what does that mean? What is Paul commanding there? What does he mean by double honor? Well, first, uh, as we think about the context, we, we've just come off Paul talking about uh, caring for those who would be considered genuine widows within the church. And there Paul commanded, honor widows who are truly widows. And there we discuss this word honor, and that it carries the idea of giving someone what is due to them. And we discuss that this can be in reference to respect, 
Uh, just like a child is owed, owes respect to his parents. That is what's due to them as their parents. And specifically in this reference here uh, to widows, uh, Paul was talking about those widows who have shown the genuineness of their faith and their commitment to serving in the church, and that what is due to them is the continual material and financial care of them. And so now here, in reference to elders, Paul is saying that to count them worthy of twice what is due to them. So not only count them worthy of respect, but also count them worthy of wages that are due to them, of worthy of financial support. It's clear that this is what Paul is talking about when we look at the scripture passages that he uses to support what he's saying. Look at verse 18. We read there, for the scripture says, and there he first quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The Old Testament forbid muzzling an ox's mouth when he's treading the grain and therefore keeping him from eating that grain while he worked. And then we see he quotes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, verse 7, when he says, The laborer deserves his wages. So for the work that the elder does, he should receive financial support. And this is consistent with Paul's teaching. We read him discuss in 1 Corinthians how him and Barnabas had the right to be supported financially by the church as others were. And we read that he says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 to 14, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You know, and there, there's some that kick back against this, saying, yeah, but can that really be what Paul was saying? Because really, could, could the churches really support a full-time pastor? Is that really what's in view here? Well, one, as we're specifically looking at 1 Timothy, and Timothy being there in the church in Ephesus, I think you may have a hard time really supporting that, as Ephesus was a, 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 uh, an established church. But also, in cases where that could be true, I would argue that is why Paul commands that the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, as opposed to commanding to give them double honor. Again, honor refers to what is due to them. And John MacArthur says that the idea is that the double honor is not a gift, but something they deserve. And so basically, by supporting their leaders, the church is saying that their work has value. And what we support them with, this is the value that their work has earned. And so supporting them with that as far as the church is able we give them as much as we, we give, we support them as we're able, showing that, that we, we value that work. And so again, what is the church able to do? And what is the church able to do with wisdom? And by doing so, they show honor by supporting their leaders. I think the 1689 London Baptist Confession uh, states it very well. It says, the churches to whom they minister must not only give them all due respect, but also must share with them from all their good things according to their ability, 
They must do this so their pastors may have a comfortable living without having to be entangled in secular matters, and so they can show hospitality to others. This is required by the law of nature and by the explicit command of our Lord Jesus, who has ordained that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. And so again, what is the church able to do? This is a responsibility, but it's not the only responsibility. Uh, I agree with with Curtis Thomas uh, when he discusses in his book, Practical Wisdom for Pastors, that the pastors must lead the church in supporting missions and outreach projects and meeting the needs of others and other ministries and paraministries. And so again, what is the church able to do? And talking about this and going through this, uh, I have to sit back and say, I think you show this attitude. Uh, As a church, uh, you have supported myself and my family. Uh, And you've also supported different ministries. I mean, you've you've shown your support to the the Sukos uh, as we support their their ministry there in, in Ukraine and the different things the church does. And in the attitude that I've seen reflected in so many of you, and your faithful giving shows that, that you take this seriously. You are, are certainly a blessing. And, and so there, there, there's, <laughs> there's nothing else to say. You are a blessing. You take these things seriously. And, and I am grateful for that. And again, verse 17, Paul commands, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. And then he says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, some argue that this should read, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, namely those who labor in the preaching and teaching. And if that's the case, then Paul would be saying here that, uh, well, he'd be clarifying who the elders who lead well are, that those elders who lead well are those who labor in the preaching and teaching. And so uh, in both clauses, there'd be only one group in mind. And, and that may be a valid translation. But some argue that this should be as we read here in the English Standard Version or in the New American Standard Bible. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially, or you could say particularly, those who labor in preaching and teaching. So that there is a specific priority given to those elders who specifically labor in the preaching and teaching of the word. And so all elders who rule well would be considered worthy of double honor, and particularly those who labor in the preaching and teaching. And I really think that this, this is the right way to understand this verse. One, uh, because we've already seen this word that's translated here as especially used in 1 Timothy, and I think it's exemplary of the seven, the seven times that Paul uses it throughout his letters. And so, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says, For to this end you, we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 
And when we were there in that passage, we, we looked at what it means and in what sense the living God is the Savior of all people, all people without distinction. And then it must be that he especially or particularly is the Savior of those who believe, as those who believe are the only ones who are actually saved. We are saved when we realize, we admit, we, we need a Savior that we are wretched sinners who have violated God's holy law, that we've earned his wrath. But in the gospel proclamation, God has awakened us to the truth and so that we would flee to Jesus. We trust in him alone to save us, trusting in his very person and his work, his life, death, and resurrection. All who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And so he is particularly the savior of those who believe. So not only, again, have we seen this word already used in 1 Timothy and, and can look at the other ways, the other times that Paul uses it, but also, too, as we look at this verse here, to read it as the English Standard Version has translated it here in chapter 5, verse 17, is really just the more plain reading of the verse. Otherwise, we'd have to ask, why even mention ruling elders and then need to clarify it in the next class? and therefore make the statement more complicated than it really needed to be. Instead, just say those who labor in the preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. Or just the elders who rule are worthy of double honor. Why, why is there a need to clarify that if, if, they're, if he's just talking about the same group? Again, as I said, all elders rule. And so don't, don't mishear me. And, and as some have put it, that there are elders who rule and there's elders who teach. No, no, all elders rule. All elders lead the church. All elders are responsible together as this council of elders uh, for the, the leading and the direction of the church. And all those elders must be able to teach. Uh, but that doesn't mean that some may not be more gifted in teaching than others, and that maybe some have more of a desire to teach than others others do. Matter of fact, one of the things that we've talked about in talking about the need for a plurality of elders is that no one elder has all the gifts needed to lead the church. And so all the elders have different giftings and, and different strengths and abilities, and so together lead the church with those strengths. And so they may have different roles to play, uh, in, in the function of the church and in their function in the elder role and the elder body, uh, even though they all do rule together, they all lead together, but they may have different functions. And so each elder may stand out in different ways, but since the spiritual well-being and safety of the church so heavily lies on the preaching and teaching of the word, as we see throughout Scripture, there is priority set on those who labor in the preaching and teaching of the word. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, particularly those who labor in the preaching and teaching. Now, in taking the time to go over that and to be as thorough as we can, I think that's worth it. Again, in looking at how God has structured his church, uh, what that leadership looks like, what kind of leadership that is, and so what the government of the church should look like and be. 
And then in recognizing that, then we can see and understand all the more who it is that Paul is saying to care for and, and how we care for them and what it means when he says that the elders who rule are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching of the word. I think it's, it's important to be thorough on this. And then that we can see clearly that Paul is calling for the care of these elders. And caring for them, and then as we continue on here, not just caring for them, but, well, it is caring for them, so in caring for them, also protect them. As we see here in verse 19, he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And I think here we see a few things. This protection, this protects the elder in that no one is able to just make a charge against an elder willy-nilly. If someone were to disagree with the direction of the church or if the personality of the elder just kind of rubs somebody the wrong way and so they, they don't like them, um, or maybe the, the elder has sinned against somebody and, and he has repented and gone to them and, and done his part for reconciliation, uh, but that person still holds a grudge. Or maybe there's a power play afoot, or whatever it could be, a slew of things that, that could be the case, and even have been the case in, in different churches. Uh, there could be a reason someone may just stand up and, and, and push an accusation against an elder. And, and any charge that comes against an elder must be taken seriously. And so Paul instructs on this here. And is saying that one should not entertain or consider a charge against an elder, unless the proper process of church discipline has been taken. Because to even entertain a charge, it must be on the account of two or three witnesses, which is taken right from the church discipline process. As mentioned before, well, I don't think I meant I'm into, but one of the things that have led to us talking about what a, a biblical church government is, is that we've been taking the time, too, to examine if the way we do church discipline here is biblical and doesn't line up with what the Scripture teaches. And <clears throat> so we've been talking about it thoroughly, so I'm not going to take the time to, to go through church discipline and what it looks like now. But as we've been talking about church discipline, we've talked about how there are protections built into the idea of church discipline. And some of the ways that we think about protection in church discipline is that it protects uh, the person who is receiving the accusation, receiving the charge. Uh, it protects them from someone, again, just making a, a flippant charge against them. And it protects them from gossip as well. And so we see the first step in church discipline, as we read in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, that Jesus says, if your brother sins, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. That it's to be just between the two of you. And again, this, this gives some protection. That if the person goes to them, but in going to them, they work things out and they realize, oh, I, I misunderstood the situation then the whole thing is over right there and, and nothing needs to go any further and, and no untruths need to go out to people. Or if the person is in sin and they repent, then again, it all ends right there. And so the understanding of what happened doesn't need to spread any further. But if the person is in sin and they will not repent, 
then the one who is bringing that accusation, the one who is confronting them, then comes to them with one or two witnesses. And Jesus says, for every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And Jesus takes that right from Deuteronomy chapter 19. And so we see the protections that are here in church discipline, and those same protections that are afforded to every member of the church is also then afforded to the elders. At the same time, though, what's also clear as we look at this is that the accountability that each member has to the whole church, the elders are also subject to that accountability as well. That's part of the role of the congregation, that they would hold the leadership accountable. And so if an elder or the elders sin, or if they step outside their authority, or they begin to teach a serious error in the church, the congregation is to hold them accountable through the process of church discipline. And if the process begins, they're confronted and they still won't repent, and then two or three witnesses and they still won't repent, and then the church is mobilized to, to confront them and call them to repent, and they still won't repent, all of this shows that they don't meet the qualifications then as well as an elder, and so they, they need to be removed from that position. And Paul says that the point of the public rebuke then that would be made against an elder is so that the rest may stand in fear. And some argue when he says here the rest, he's referring to the other elders. Others argue that this reference to the rest is the rest of the congregation, which would include the elders as well. But in either case, it is clear that part of the point of church discipline is to deter sin in the church. And so that when there's this deterrent, one may think twice when they're tempted, or maybe that deterrent will remove the temptation altogether. And whatever we do to remove the temptation from anybody in the church, including the elders, we are protecting them. And that is a serious matter that we should take very seriously. And Paul calls Timothy to take this very seriously. Paul charged Timothy there in verse 21, charging him in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, the, the elect angels as opposed to the fallen angels. He charges Timothy in their presence that he would see to it that these commands are carried out and, and that he would recognize then who he's ultimately accountable to. And so that Timothy would see that these things are carried out in the fear of the Lord. He references God God who is the one whom all judgment belongs to, references Christ, Christ who is the one entrusted with all judgment, and, and the elect angels who are associated with judgment at Christ's second coming. <clears throat> he mentions these three just as he comes off talking about two or three witnesses. And so these would be witnesses if Timothy does not do as, he's, as he should. And so that he would do this in the fear of the Lord that he would see that these matters are determined without prejudging and without doing anything from partiality. And so Timothy was to let the discipline process take its course until innocence or guilt was determined. And so he wasn't to make a, a, a judgment on someone um, with partiality. You know, this person's my friend. I like this guy, so of course he's innocent. He wasn't to prejudge that way. At the same time, too, he wasn't to assume someone's guilt 
uh, because he was getting pressure from maybe someone who's influential in the church pressing that charge. Timothy wasn't to fear men. He was to fear God in all that he did. And so to see that these things were taken care of in the right manner and that he would do it in the fear of God. And my friends, we too, we must remember to do things, to, to carry out church discipline in the fear of the Lord, that it would be carried out in a biblical manner as God has made clear in his word. And that there would be no, then, preferential treatment even for elders who sin. But one way we can avoid issues like that, when it comes to the leadership at least, not that it would be foolproof, but one way to avoid such issues is to make sure that those that are in place as the leaders of the church meet the qualifications that we see there in chapter 3. And any of us, you know, we can rush to conclusions of, of why we think someone should be an elder. Uh, maybe they've shown some kind of charisma or, or giftedness in some other way. Uh, but we have to remember that the qualifications that we went over there in chapter 3 focus on the character of a man. For a man that we see uh, in a limited setting, it can be easy for him to hide things about himself. And so we must give time and opportunity to see if a man is qualified. So Paul says to Timothy in verse 22, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Uh, being patient can prevent an unqualified man from being placed in leadership. And it can help us see who is truly qualified. And as he talks about this, what's in reference there to the laying on of hands is appointing someone to the role of elder. And it's connected with ordination, which though I don't have the time now to get into it. If we were to reflect on this, I think it should make us think about what ordination really is and how we practice it here in the church. Uh, but again, I'm not going to take the time to get into that right now. Maybe we can do that another time. But we should be cautious in moving forward and bringing someone before the congregation to be an elder, or else we could be at risk of putting an unqualified person in place if we're too hasty about it. And then if he brings ruin because he's been put in a position he shouldn't have been in to begin with, then it must be said that we have partaken in their sin. We have contributed to their sin because we put them in the place to begin with by making them an elder too hastily. Now, but if we've done our due diligence, if we're doing our best to please the Lord in, in making this decision and moving forward with someone who we truly believe fits the qualifications, uh, then we do need to leave the outcome to the Lord. Uh, the church has never got it right 100% of the time. Uh, we can even read of Paul talking about how Demas uh, abandoned him. And so there we can see it, wasn't, it didn't get it right all the time. And I would argue that that's why, too, there is the process of church discipline, to, to bring correction when we, we get it wrong. But we have to entrust that to the Lord and that he is sovereign over all of this. He has given us responsibility, and so we pursue that responsibility. We do our due diligence, and we, we trust the result to the Lord. 
And then in verse 23, Paul makes a a quick side note here to Timothy. Uh, Clearly, Timothy was having some medical issues, uh, mostly concerning his stomach. And I'm sure the weight of the task that was on Timothy as he's there in Ephesus probably didn't help that. Uh, But drinking straight water in the ancient world often made people sick. Uh, It's a sure bet that water then was full of bacteria and all kinds of things, that when people drank it, they, they got sick. But at that time, too, certain amounts of wine was used for medicinal purposes. And it may be true that Timothy purposely was avoiding any wine, and we could make a bunch of educated guesses as to why, but the text doesn't actually say. All it says here is that out of concern for Timothy, Paul told him to drink not straight water, but a little bit of wine. And then we see Paul return to the point of not being too hasty in, laying, in the laying on of hands to appoint someone as an elder. And we see him return to that in verse 24 when he says, the sins of some people are conspicuous. Uh, there are those whose lifestyles and sins make it very clear that they are not qualified to be elders. Uh, we don't even need to take the time to, to consider it and pray about it. It's just so evident to us that, that this person, no, that they should not be in leadership. Paul says their sins are going before them to judgment. Uh, that their sins shout their guilt and And before the church even has the opportunity to judge and decide whether or not they should be an elder, it's clear that they should not. Then Paul says, but the sins of others appear later. For some, it might be obvious, but for others, it may take time, so we need to do our due diligence. There may be reasons that we look at someone and say, you know, they would be a great elder. But over time, we find out, well, really, they're they're a divisive person. Uh, They're unteachable. Uh, There's no area where they can just agree to disagree. Or maybe they have secret sins that they've been hiding. Or maybe their motives in taking up leadership would be wrong and and evil. And so we we need to do our due diligence and, and, and take time and seeing if these things show themselves. But one thing is for sure, that for someone whose character fits the qualifications of an elder, for someone who's committed to God's people because of his commitment to God, and he's, his life then is full of good works, those good works are going to show. And even if they don't show right away, they're, they're eventually going to show. And so again, we should take our time and do our due diligence to see who who should be an elder, who should take that position, who is qualified. And again, this this is part of protecting the elders. And it's really, too, protecting the whole church as well, that we would not put unqualified men into positions that they shouldn't be in. It it protects everybody, and it protects those men themselves. Uh, It's a danger to them to put them in a position they shouldn't be in. And so in caring for the elders, we should want to protect the elders in all of these ways that Paul goes over and make sure that it's qualified men who is leading the church. And again, we see this this care and this protection is God's desire for his church. 
And I think in this too, we, we see the structure of church leadership. We see how God has designed that structure as we, we look at what Paul says here in this passage. This is the, the church government that God desires. We see how he has ordered his church and the leadership in it. And again, he desires that we, we care for that leadership. And we also see too here, he also cares about church discipline. God's desire is that we do church discipline biblically. We don't prejudge, and we don't do anything out of partiality. We let the church discipline process take its place, and we seek to honor God in that. And so, my friends, in everything, we should be searching the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures say? What do the Scriptures teach us? This is our authority. We stand on the Word of God. And so, this tells us God's desire for His church. This tells us God's desire for North Valley. And so let us be searching the scriptures and praying that God would give us wisdom, uh, that we would show and demonstrate in our, our striving to obey the word that we desire to be the church that God desires us to be. And let us be always pursuing that and growing in that in every way as we look to God's word and submit ourselves to it. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.